posture of worship. While you remain standing, would you take your Bible and go to James chapter 2. Thank you, Tyler, for leading us in the Lord's Supper so beautifully and wonderfully as you encouraged us. James chapter 2, starting with verse number 14. What good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith, but you don't show it by your actions? Can that kind of faith save anyone? Suppose you see a brother or sister who has no food or clothing and you say, goodbye, have a good day, stay warm and eat well. But then you don't give that person any food or any clothing. What good does that do? So you see, faith by itself isn't enough. Unless it produces good deeds, it is dead and useless. Some translations will say faith without works is dead. Now someone may argue some people have faith, others have good deeds. But I, James, the half-brother of Jesus, I say to you, how can you show me your faith if you don't have good deeds? I will show you my faith by my good deeds. You say you have faith for you believe there is one God. Good. Good for you, James says. Even the demons believe this and they tremble in terror. How foolish. Can't you see that faith without good deeds is useless? Don't you remember that our ancestor Abraham was shown to be right with God by his actions when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see, his faith and his actions worked together. His actions made his faith complete. And so it happened just as the scripture says, Abraham believed God and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. He was even called the friend of God. So you see, we are shown to be right with God by what we do, not by faith alone. If I could reword that, we are shown to be right with God, not because we confess Jesus as Lord and Savior, but how we live our everyday lives. Rahab, the prostitute, is another example. She was shown to be right with God by her actions when she hid those messengers and, hid the, and sent them safely by a different road. And just as the body without, or just as the body is dead without breath, so also faith is dead without good works so also faith is dead without a life that backs up the confession that it holds on to. Father, as you have been so generous with yourself, I pray, God, that as we continue to lift up the name of Jesus, as we reflect and unpack your word, that you will continue to move in our hearts, to move in our lives, to touch our minds, 
that we would be receptive, that we would be sensitive, and God, that we would be malleable as you shape us, as you conform us to the image of your perfect son, that we would leave this place, God, looking and sounding and thinking more like Jesus than we ever have before. And we pray it in the strong name of Christ. And Lifehouse said, amen. Amen. Can you give the Lord praise this morning? Amen. Amen. You can be seated today. Uh, I want to just, before we go into the word, I want to take a moment and honor the Martin family. Come on, Brooke and Tyler, will you stand up? Stand up. I know you just sat down. Um, they do such an incredible job of leaving, leading, not leaving, please, in the name of Jesus, no, I speak against that. Leading the ministry of Chi Alpha at the University of Tennessee in Knoxville. And come on, you, uh, uh, Chi Alpha, will you stand today? Come on, we honor you, all of you today. We honor you. And we thank you for being in service with us. Uh, yeah, we honor you guys. Y'all can be seated. They are, uh, at a they are holding a retreat right now. I'm looking at Tyler for confirmation that I don't say the wrong things. In our other building, they've been here for, uh, what, since Friday, I think. And uh, you guys will be here relatively through the rest of the day, right? Yeah, maybe not. Okay. Okay, okay, good. Yeah, till 2. So uh, I'm just thankful that, um, you know, they come in and they say, thank you for letting us use your property. Can I just be honest with you? I'm just very grateful that, number one, that we have property that is available for them to be able to use. And number two, that the Lord privileges us to allow them uh, the space to be here with us. Uh, you guys are the blessing to us. It is not the other way around. I, I assure you of that. So we honor you. We love you. Yeah, one more time. Sure. We thank you. Brooke and Tyler are very dear friends. And if, if I've ever known a true man of God and a true woman of God, you guys are it. And I love you. I honor you. And I thank you so much for allowing us to be friends with you. Um, if you're watching online today, can we give it up for anybody and everybody joining us for LifeHouse in your house? Uh, I've never, I don't do this before, uh, I haven't done this before, but if you're watching online today, uh, let us know where you're watching from, drop it in the comments, let us know, and, um, you know, throw in some courtesy amens, just like I let everybody in the, Jessica's told me today she's going to give me five courtesy amens, so, uh, there's one, there's one, I, uh, I, uh, I'm looking for some more of those, so, uh, we are into the meat of James now, we are a few weeks into this series, I believe this is part six, of our time through James. And I told you at the outset of this that James is considered by some to be a controversial book of the Bible, uh, specifically because James often comes across as in that he is in opposition to some of the words of the Apostle Paul. In fact, Martin Luther, the famous reformer from the 1500s who nailed the 95 theses uh, on, the, on the church doors in Wittenberg, Germany, and I believe 15... Oh, something, 15-something, I don't know. Somebody in here knows more than me about church history. Uh, but he said of James that it is an epistle of straw. And because Martin Luther was also a Bible translator and put together Bibles, uh, he went on record saying that the book of James, the epistle of James, will not be found in my Bible. Uh, he just left that mug out. He said, I don't have time for you, half-brother of Jesus. I'll let Jude have some space, but not you, not you, James. Um, and, and certainly not to stand in opposition to Martin Luther, uh, because he was way smarter than I ever hoped to be. 
but you would have to under the, understand the context of his life and how he stood against the beliefs and the practices of the Catholic Church during that time in history and how some of the, um, some of the things that they did uh, that were wrong were actually done, founded on some of what James says. And, you know, here's the deal with the Bible. I can make it say anything I want to say if I work hard enough to manipulate it in my favor. Uh, so the, the way that I should approach the Word of God is not for me to find what I want to find, but for me to be open and, and to be a, for me to be a blank slate and to say, okay, Father, you speak. You do in me what you want to do. And so today, my goal as we unpack this passage of Scripture in James is that the Holy Spirit would speak and that he would convict, that he would challenge, that he would encourage, and that he would inspire our hearts today as we see what this man, literally the half-brother of Jesus, says about what real faith looks like in real life. And so, I don't have three points in a poem. Uh, we're going to go through this thing verse by verse. We're going to dissect this uh, as good as we can do in the next 36 minutes. And then when I go over the timer and it turns red on me, we're going to just keep going probably. Uh, but in verse 14, James starts off in the passage that we read today, and he says, What good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith, but you don't show it by your actions? Can that kind of faith save anyone? And I think before we go any further, it would be a good idea for us to, to, to come up with a good, solid, working definition of what faith is. Now, in its simplest form, faith is to just believe that something is or exists or will do what it says it will do. Uh, and we all practice faith on some level in some sort of things all the time. But if we're speaking specifically about what faith in God looks like, the writer of Hebrews tells us this about faith. He says, he or she says, faith shows the reality of what we hope for. It is the evidence of things that we cannot see. Faith shows the reality of what we hope for, and it is the evidence. Everybody say that word, evidence. 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 It is the evidence of things that we cannot see. In other words, faith is having complete confidence that God will do what he says he will do. And so, in essence, sin, in its most basic form, is not trusting that God really is as good as he says he is. Sin, in its, in its most raw form, if we were to whittle away all the layers and get down to the foundation of what sin is, sin is believing that God is not as good as he says he is. And we could take that all the way back to Genesis 3, where the serpent deceives Eve, not by tempting her to do something bad, but by convincing her or deceiving her into believing that God really isn't as good as, as she has been led to believe that he is. And so faith is the opposite of sin because faith says, even though my eyes don't understand and even though my mind can't comprehend, my faith tells me that God is good and he is worth my trust. Faith tells me that God is good and he is worth my trust. Faith is believing in the reality of something or someone that you have not experienced with your physical senses. It's believing in the reality of something or someone, even though you haven't experienced it with your physical senses. You see, if God could come down 
and, and if God chose to come and appear to me in physical form and manifest him in a miraculous way and, and, and if God answered every single one of my selfish prayers with an, a yes, then that would take no faith. That would take no faith to trust and to believe him. But because God does not make it always easy, and I know many of us would say, I wish sometimes he would just make it a little easier. Well, that's just not how it works, my friend. You see, we don't walk by sight, Paul says. We walk by faith. We don't live by sight. We don't live by, what, by seeing. We live by believing, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians. And James goes on and he says, now that we've got a, a good definition of what faith is, he says, suppose you see a brother or a sister who has no food or clothing, and you say, goodbye, have a good day. I mean, like, do you, do you hear the sarcastic tone in James's, in James's writing right now? You see somebody in need, and you're like, hey, hope you're doing great. Hope, hope you're having a good day. And the whole time, they are shivering cold. And some of you are doing that right now because our air conditioner can't figure out what to do with the fact that November doesn't know whether it's fall or summer right now. <laughs> Don't blame me. Blame the seasons, okay? You see somebody shivering cold, and you're saying, hey, man, I hope you stay warm today. You see somebody, and they're so hungry, and they're emaciated, and you can... You can tell that they haven't had a good meal in a long time, and you say, hey, man, hope you, hope you get some food, man. Hope, hope, hope you get what you're looking for. Have a good rest of your day. See you later. But then you don't give that person anything. You don't give them food. You don't give them clothing. James says, what good is that? Listen, I don't think many of us would do that today, but I'll tell you what we do often. And I, if I'm being really honest, I, I've been guilty of this as well. And we see somebody or somebody comes to us and they say, hey, will you pray for me about and then fill in the blank? And you say, yeah, man, I'll be glad to pray for you. Yeah, I'll be, I would, I'd be honored to pray for you. And then time passes, and, and this, this has happened to me before, and I didn't pray for them. Can I just be honest with you? Some of you in this room have probably asked me to pray for you. This is just me being a real person right now, not putting on a show for you. Some of you have probably asked me to pray for you, and I said, yeah, I'll be glad to pray for you. And then time goes by, and you call me or you text me, and you're like, hey, thank you so much for praying. Some of you right now are wondering, did he really do that? <laughs> and and, and, and you, you're going to call me, you call me, and you say, hey, thanks so much for praying. This thing happened. And I go, oh, yeah, yeah you're welcome. Yes, yes, that's, that's great. I'm so glad I prayed for you right? That's why I often make a practice of it when somebody asks me to pray. I'm like, let's do that right now. Let's pray right now. But yeah, you see somebody in a, in a situation and you say, yeah, I'm, I'll be glad to pray for you. And then you don't pray for them. And then you don't do anything else to help them. James, James is saying, what good is this to say, I'll pray for you and not actually praying? Or not actually doing what you could do. James is saying, what good is it when you say, yeah, I'm a Christian. I got saved when I was five. But your life looks nothing like Jesus today. James would say, uh, yeah, I'm a Christian. I got baptized when I was 13 years old. My mom and dad go to church. I don't go to church, you know, because going to church doesn't make you a Christian, right? Yeah, I don't read my Bible because, you know, I can't really understand what it says, right? Yeah, I don't tell people about Jesus because if they ask me a question, I wouldn't know how to answer them. So it's just better off if I stay quiet. James says, what good is that kind of faith? What's the point of having that kind of faith? 
to say you're saved, to say I've been baptized, to say I was raised in church, but it has no impact on my life today. And my life is void of the fruit of the Spirit. James is saying, what you might say the joy of the Lord is my strength, and you quote Nehemiah. Y'all, some people quote that and they don't even know where it comes from. <laughs> the joy of the Lord is my strength. Well, have you informed your face and attitude? Because when I talk to you, you seem ill, cranky, and angry. And the, if the joy of the Lord is your strength, then you must be so weak, I don't even know how you're standing. James would say, what good is that? What good is that kind of faith? James is essentially saying, if that's what faith looks like, then I don't want anything to do with that mess. I don't want that kind of faith. That, that faith is worthless. You might say, Jesus, yeah, you know, Jesus is Lord of my life. I prayed the sinner's prayer. I confessed him as my Savior, and I confessed him as Lord, and he's the Lord of my life. But you still live like a control freak with how you spend every dollar, how you spend every minute, how you spend your time and what you do with your life. And if Jesus is Lord of your, of your life, then, then, he, then, then it's not lining up with his word. And so there's some, somewhere there's a disconnect between what you claim to be reality and what everybody around you sees as reality. James is saying, what, kind of, what good is that kind of faith? He goes on and he says in verse 17, you see, faith by itself isn't enough. And this is where we get our controversy. I told you last week I love controversy as long as I'm not the one involved. And I get to watch it from a safe distance. And James says, you see, faith by itself isn't enough unless, everybody say the word unless, Unless it produces good deeds or good works or changed life. Unless it does this, it is dead and it is worthless. Now those of you who are, are familiar with the Bible and those of you who have studied the word, and some of you even know why this is controversial for James to say this, it appears as if on surface level that James is actually in conflict with the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle Paul is probably responsible for 75% of our Christian theology. Most of it itself coming from the book of Romans. And the rest of it being filled in with Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians, and Philippians. And so we go to Ephesians, one of the letters Paul writes. And he writes to the church at Ephesus. And Paul says, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. James just says faith by itself isn't enough, right? Paul goes back and he says, and this is not from yourselves. In other words, you did not earn your salvation. You did not earn the right to be saved. You've been saved by grace. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. Mercy is getting or not getting what you do deserve, right? You've been saved by grace because you believe, because of faith, and you didn't do it yourself. You didn't earn it. You didn't deserve it. It is a gift of God, not by works. What did James just say? If your faith doesn't show up in your works, then it's dead and useless. Oh man, like, is the Bible trustworthy all of a sudden? Like, can I trust this Bible? Because it appears to be in conflict with itself. Because James says, if my faith doesn't show up in my actions, then that faith isn't real. And Paul says that it is by faith, not by my actions, that I've been saved. It's a gift of God. I didn't earn it. I can't earn it. There's a, there's a doctrine called justification by faith alone. In Latin, it is sola fida. And I'm not saying it right because I never took Latin. 
I took Greek, though, so back up off me. <laughs> and sola fide means that we have been justified, or rather, let me say it like this, we have been made right with God through faith, not by works, through faith alone. And unless you take the time to really hear what James is saying, you might be tempted to think that James is defying this theological, scriptural truth. But how many of you understand that if this was something that I really thought was a problem, I probably wouldn't preach on it. I would just kind of forget about it and hope you didn't notice. <laughs> right? Like, maybe they, nobody will ask about that. That would be great. So verse 18, James goes on and he says, Now some of you may argue, like maybe Paul. No, no, Paul wouldn't argue with this. That some people have faith and others have good deeds. In other words, you know, some people have like, they, they pray really loud and really eloquently, right? Uh, but, you know, I help the poor. You know, and that's kind of what, what James is trying to establish here. Some may argue that some people have faith and others have good deeds. But I say to you, how can you show me your faith if you don't have good deeds? I will show you my faith by my good deeds. That's why here at Lifehouse, our mission is not to tell the world that they're loved and highly valued. We were very intentional when we worded that statement. Our mission is to show the world that they're loved and highly valued. To show the world. If I, if I tell, there's an old saying, I don't know who started it, but I heard it from John Maxwell. And he says that if you have to tell everybody you're in charge, then you're not in charge. Like if you have to be like, hey, I'm the leader, everybody follow me. Hey, hey, leader right here. Then you're not the leader. If you have to convince people that you're a Christian, are you? If you have to argue that, yeah, yeah, I'll follow Jesus, but when people see the evidence of your life, they go, but really? Are you a Christian? You see, real faith is more than just agreement with the truth. Many people say, I believe in Jesus. I mean, I grew up in the South where everybody was a Christian, right? And that has changed a little bit in the last couple of decades. But if you travel outside of the southeastern United States, you will find that in the south, compared to the other parts of the country, it's still relatively true that most people in the south claim to be a Christian, even if their life doesn't back it up. But real faith is more than just an agreement with the truth. I was a Christian before I became a Christian, to be honest with you. You know what I'm saying? Like, I would have told people, yeah, I'm a Christian, and I had no idea what that meant. I had no idea what that looked like, but I had heard the story. I had gone to church enough to just get enough information to get me in trouble, but not to get me out of it, right? I said, yeah, I believe Jesus died and rose again, but it had never made its home in my heart, and it had never had the opportunity to change my life. I knew the facts, I had heard the story, and I would have even told you I believed it, but I was no more a Christian than this pulpit right here is. I was no more a follower of Jesus than this bottle of water is. Because it hadn't changed me. It was just information that I said, yeah, I agree with that. Real faith takes action in alignment with the believed truth, though. 
Real faith always takes action in alignment with the believed truth. Now, listen, I don't know about you guys, and I don't mean this in a negative way, and I get scared when I talk about restaurants in town because somebody may work there and they may get offended. I've already done that once, it's like in the last month, and I don't want to do it again. But listen, can I, just, can I make a confession to you right now? I love to go eat at Chick-fil-A, but I don't like their food. I, I mean, marinating chicken and pickle juice, like What? Like, is buttermilk that bad? <laughs> like, listen, uh, people love waffle fries. And I'm thinking, have you ever had Arby's curly fries? Yeah. Like, yeah. really? Yeah. Like, seriously? But I eat at Chick-fil-A all the time. There are two reasons why I eat at Chick-fil-A. Number one, my kids like it. All the parents said amen. But number two, the number two reason why I eat at Chick-fil-A all the time is because they have incredible customer service. Come on. I feel the Lord in this place. And you see, when I go through the Chick-fil-A drive-thru, I don't hold up the line checking my bag to make sure my order is right. Because I have faith and believe that the people who work for God's chicken are going to get things right. Now some of y'all are like, no, I still check. And, and yeah, you know, that's fine too. Uh, when I came in and I turned the lights on in this building this morning, I, I didn't go, man, I, I really hope this switch works. I didn't even think about it. I just turned it on because real faith takes alignment with the action that you say that you believe. And sometimes what, what the real goal of faith is that, I, that it becomes so real to me is that I don't even think about it anymore. It just becomes part of who I am. And so when I walked in, I turned the lights on and I didn't go, oh, in the name of Jesus please work. You know, it just, it, and it, it, it just, they just worked. And I mean, maybe I should pray more about the lights in this building, but <laughs> you guys established a doctrine and belief and faith this morning as you walked in, as you sat in these chairs. I did not see a single person getting down and going, okay, this leg looks good. Okay. All right. I think he can hold me. You know, I didn't see a single person inspecting the integrity of the chairs. I didn't see a single person making sure that the metal of the chair legs was, was solid and, and, and what it needed to be, structurally sound. Now, you just came in and you threw your purse down or you threw your jacket down or you, you spilled your coffee on it or whatever, and then you sat down, right? You just sat down. See, because real faith is shown not just in what you say you believe, but in how you live. Real faith is shown not just in what you say you believe, but in how you live. James goes on in verse 19, and he says, You say you have faith, for you believe that there is one God. Good for you. Oh, way to go, guys. You say you believe that there's one God. Wow. Somebody give them a blue first place ribbon right there. Somebody put a gold star on their chart. Come on, they're doing so good. You say you believe there's one God. Good for you. Even the demons believe this and they tremble in fear. How foolish. Can't you see that faith without good deeds is useless? Demons believe, he says, and they are afraid of God, but their belief in God doesn't become action for God. That's why fear-based preaching and salvations never work. Because once you, once you become familiar with something, and once enough time passes, that fear will dissipate. 
You see, I started preaching when I was 15 years old. And can I tell you, I need a mic. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take this one, but I'll put it back, maybe. It'll be over here. And, and, and so we didn't have headset mics in my church. I don't even know if they existed in the 1990s, man. And, and, and so I would preach my first, like, four or five sermons, and this is what it looked like. Because I was so scared, I would just shake, and my voice would tremble, and I would like have to hold on real tight because I would shake the microphone so hard, and, and, and because I was so afraid. But can I tell you that after, I'm doing it, putting it back, after, after 20 plus years of standing in front of people, uh, that I will be really honest with you, there's still a level of fear, I would even say a healthy fear, that, that you feel when you stand in front of people and you proclaim the word of God. But after 20 plus years of doing it, I don't, my hands don't shake that bad anymore, right? I'm not, I'm not as afraid of it as I used to be because fear will dissipate with time and familiarity. And if you get saved because you are afraid of hell, if there's enough time, you will start to become familiar with the idea and it won't affect you like it used to affect you and it won't last, right? That's why I don't try to make people scared of God when I preach. I don't try to make people scared of hell when I preach. I want people to fall in love with God. You see, it's a, it's a terrible reason to do anything. If you get married because you are afraid of being alone, that's a terrible reason to get married. If you get saved because you are afraid of going to hell, can I tell you that's a terrible reason to give your life to Jesus. The fear of God is not being afraid of God. It's to, to be afraid of being far from God, to be without God. James goes on, and he says, Don't you remember that our ancestor Abraham was shown to be right with God by his actions when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see, his faith and his actions worked together. I love that phrase. His faith and his actions worked together. His actions made his faith complete. And so it happened, just as the scriptures say, Abraham believed God, and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. He was even called a friend of God. If you go back to Genesis 22, God speaks to Abraham one day, and he says, Abraham, I want you to take your son, the son of promise, and I want you to take him up the mountain. I want you to offer him as a sacrifice to me. This is like if I can just be real with you right here, this is like one of the most messed up passages of Scripture in the whole Bible to me. Like, it's just crazy, right? And you have to even go back further than that and understand that Isaac only exists as a miracle that God gave Abraham and Sarah. Abraham was in his 100s, or I believe about 100 years old. Sarah was in her, like her 80s to 90s. And, and God spoke to Abraham, and he said, Abraham, I'm going to make you the father of many nations, that your descendants will be as numerous as the sands of the seashore and as the stars of the sky. And Abraham says, but God, how is that going to be possible? I'm an old man, and we don't even have kids yet. And God says, you will have a son. You're going to call him Isaac. And several years passed. In fact, about 30 years passed before the promise came into fruition. And now, here we are, a few years after Isaac is born. And God says to Abraham, Abraham, I want to take the thing that I've given you. I want, I want to take the blessing that I gave you. I want you to take the promise that I gave you. And I want you to kill it. I want you to offer it back up to me. That's why we, and this is, a, this is just for fun right here. 
That's why we can never become more obsessed with the blessings that come from God's hand than we can be from the blessings that come from seeking his face. He's always got to be the purpose. He's always got to be, he can't be a means to your end. He has to be the end. He is the end. He is the goal. He is the prize. He is the priority. Everything that I get from his hand is a fringe benefit. They said, or, or James says that Abraham's actions made his faith complete because real faith, here, if you write anything down, write this down. Real faith always results in obedience. Real faith always results in obedience. Abraham chose to believe God despite all odds, and that led to Isaac's birth. And then Abraham also chose to to obey God despite all reason. And so that's why Abraham put Isaac on the altar. Now, just to finish that story for you real quick, Abraham, as the Bible says that he was getting, like, this is intense, y'all. As he was getting ready to, to sacrifice his son, he had the knife in his hand, and he was getting ready to make the cut where his son would be killed as a sacrifice on an altar for God. The voice of the Lord spoke, and it said, Abraham, stop. And, man, that's why you got to be sensitive to the Lord's voice right there, right? you got to hear God. Listen, you better be listening in all situations and circumstances. Circumstances, Lord, help me to be sensitive to your voice. And so Abraham stops, and, 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 and God says to Abraham, today I know that you trust me. Now listen, what's also beautiful about Abraham's life is, man, he made plenty of mistakes. I'm not, I don't have time to go into those today, but he was not a perfect person. And his faith sometimes wavered. There, was, there were occasions where Abraham would make decisions because in his heart he struggled to believe that God really was going to do what he said he was going to do. And he would try to do the work of God for God. And it resulted in things in Abraham's life that, that, that he had to deal with and that had to, he had to take responsibility for. But the beauty, though, is that God never said, okay, well, you've messed up. I'm done. I'm done with you. You've, you've messed up now. No, God never did that, and he won't ever do it to you either. As long as you'll keep coming back to him, he will always be there for you. And so God said, there's a ram in the thicket. One of the first sermons I ever remember hearing after becoming a Christian was a man preaching on this story, and the name of the sermon was Over Yonder. <laughs> Because the King James says, over yonder, there's a ram in the thicket. And it was talking about how even when you're not expecting it, God's always pulling out blessings. You just got to look over yonder sometimes to, to, to places where you aren't expecting to see them. That's a good sermon. Maybe, maybe next week AJ will preach that one. <laughs> over yonder. James says in verse 24, you see, we are shown to be right with God by what we do, not by faith alone we are shown to be right with god by what we do not by faith alone here's what james doesn't say he doesn't say so you see we are made right with god by what we do not by faith alone and this is the distinction that you have to make so so let's say you've got a friend i hope you've all got a friend everybody needs a friend right but let's say you've got a friend and but you continue and you say this is my friend Brandon over here. Brandon's my friend. I love Brandon. Brandon loves it when I call him out in church, right? Say his name. Are you going to dismiss us in prayer today, Brandon? (laughs) 
Listen, no profanity in church, buddy, okay? I won't ask you to do that. It's okay. Don't worry about that. But Brandon's my friend. But let me ask you this, Brandon. If I continually neglect our relationship, like you text me, you call me, I don't answer, I don't call you back, I don't text you back. If I continue, continually, I can't say the word, if I continually, there you go, come on, neglect our relationship. If I, if I hear Santana over here bad-mouthing Brandon, right? And I just go, mm-hmm, 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 mm-hmm. And I don't take up for Brandon. And I don't say, hey, Santana, you can't talk about Brandon like that. Brandon's my friend. You don't, don't be bad-mouthing my friend. If, 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 I, if I know Brandon is moving, oh, mm. and, and Brandon says, hey, I need some people to help me move a sofa. And I say, no, I'm good. <laughs> I'm good. And continually, Brandon says, Drew, can you do this for me, or Drew, can you help me with this? Am I actually Brandon's friend? I mean, but like, I said he was my friend. But am I? If I say I love my wife, I'm going to get personal, I'm going to get real, because I don't want to just say a bunch of stuff that sounds good, but let's, let's talk about some hard things, right? If I say I love my wife, but I continually neglect spending quality time with her, if I, if I don't intentionally do things for her that meet her needs and fulfill her desires. If my eyes are often caught looking lustfully at another woman, whether in a magazine, on my phone, or at the gym. But I say I love my wife. Do I love my wife? I might love the idea of being married. I might love the benefits I get from being married. Come on, there's a lot of men and women who call themselves Christians. They don't love Jesus, but they love the idea that when they die, they may not go to hell. You know? If I say I love my kids, but I don't spend time with them, teaching them, loving them, giving them affection and affirmation, if I continually choose hobbies and work over spending time with them and being there for them. If I don't do the work of lovingly disciplining them and correcting them when they go wrong. You know what I see a lot of parents do today when their kids are, 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 are misbehaving? They take a screen and they shove it in their face and they say, hey, go over there and leave me alone. That's not parenting. That's not even babysitting. That's neglect. I didn't come to play. I don't know about you. It's so much easier to give your child what they want than it is to be a parent that chooses corrective action and discipline. I'm not getting nearly as many amens now as I was earlier. I was talking about being a good friend, and everybody's on board with that. Now I'm talking about being a good mom or daddy, and everybody's like, now you're meddling, preacher. But if I don't do those things, even though I say I love my child, do I really? Do I love them at the expense of my time and energy? A lot of people, they don't love their kids, but they make an idol out of their kids. Okay, I'll move on. I'm sorry. If I claim to be a Christian, which by the way, the word Christian means little Christ. 
If I claim to be a Christian, but I continually neglect my relationship with Jesus, if I continually neglect time in his word, and if I don't increasingly look more like him and talk more like him, do I love Jesus? Am I a Christian? Or do I just want the benefits that I associate with what it means to be a Christian? Is God a, 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 a means to my end? James would say, no, friend, your faith was worthless because you were deceived. Do you know the easiest person in this world to lie to is yourself? There's no one easier for you to deceive. There, there's no one easier for you to deceive with unpure motives than you. I'm sorry, I meddled earlier. I feel like, I feel like y'all are mad at me now. All right, Shakai, it's just me and you, girl. We got this. <laughs> James says, we are shown to be right with God by what we do. We are shown to be right with God by what we do. When we love, when we forgive, when we give of ourselves, when we spend time in his presence, when we spend time studying not just reading through his word to check it off our to-do list, but we spend time studying his word. You see, studying the word of God is not just for preachers and teachers. It's for anybody who calls Jesus Lord. When we spend time loving our neighbor and sharing the gospel with those that we come into contact with, when we stay planted in Christ so that the fruit of the Spirit is naturally produced through our relationship with Jesus, we are shown to be right with God by what we do. And just so that you know that Paul and James are on the same page here, this is what Paul says in Ephesians 2.10. He says, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Created in Christ Jesus to do good works, to do good deeds. Can I just tell you, just to clear the air on this, I am not saved because of good works. But when I am saved, good works are the natural product of my salvation. And if good works do not start showing forth in my life, then, then my confession of faith and my living out of my faith, there is somewhere in that a disconnect. There is deception. There is something that has eked its way into my life that has disconnected the reality of my confession of faith and the living of my faith. We are shown to be right with God by how we live. We were created in Christ Jesus to do good works. And Paul says that we were done this long ago, that God prepared these in advance for us. In other words, because God is eternal and he exists outside of the boundaries of time and space, that before the foundations of the earth were laid, you existed in the heart and mind of God. And he knew that, that in you, that there would be, there would around you rather, that there would be a world that would be in need of, of hearing the gospel, not just by word, but seeing it through demonstration. And so God, before the foundations of the world began, he said, I'm going to make me an AJ. And I'm going to put him in Clinton, Tennessee, 
where he has a, a, the ability to impact Oak Ridge and Knoxville. And, and in 2022, I'm going to raise this man up and I'm going to give him positions in life, not so that he can just make a living, but so that he can, so that he can change lives. Because every time God looks at you and he sees you, he says, I made you because there is a need in this world. And I gave you the ability and I gave you the calling and I gave you the power of the spirit to do something about the needs that you see. See, at some point, our Christian life has to stop always being about us trying to get right with God. It has to stop being about us walking in every Sunday and needing a pep talk from a preacher. And instead, we bring the pep in with us. Now listen, you're going to have bad days. You're going to have bad weeks. You're going to have bad moments. But if that's the way you always live life, my friend, that's no way to live life. And that's not God's plan for your life. God's plan for your life is that you would be blessed to be a blessing. That you would be a conduit of his goodness, his power, his grace, his love, and his mercy. Paul said, that he prepared, he created us for good works, which he prepared in advance for us to do. And James says, we are shown to be right with God by how we live our lives. By how we live our lives. And with all the love I have in my heart, I'm telling you right now, if you take a good long look at your life, and if it doesn't look a whole lot more like Jesus than a whole lot a whole less lot like you. Maybe today is the day you say, Lord, there's a disconnect between what I say I believe and how I live. There's the old Bible terminology, we would call it sanctification, which means that I continually, every day I die to myself so that Christ may live through me. James goes on and he has one more verse that we're going to read. I won't spend any time on it, but just real quick. Rahab the prostitute is another example. Man, it's so funny to me that of all people in the Bible, James can go to. He goes to Rahab. If you're unfamiliar with Rahab's story, she was a prostitute who lived in Jericho. You can read about her in Joshua chapter 2 and a few chapters after that. And the messengers that were sent by Joshua to go into Jericho the spies rather, Rahab hides them in her home and then helps them escape Jericho without being harmed. And when the walls of Jericho come a-tumbling down, Rahab is saved. She is spared because of how she helped God's people. James isn't the only one who talks about her. You can go and you can actually read about her in Hebrews chapter 11. We call that the hall of faith, right? She's mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11. But I think the most interesting place that she is mentioned is in Matthew. And this is a part of scripture that if you're like me, and I'm just being, this is me being honest with you, I often just skim over real quick because I think, oh, there's nothing good in here. And that is the genealogies. The begots, the begots, the begots, the begots, right? And I'm like, okay, 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 okay. But if you pay attention in the gospel of Matthew as we see the genealogy of, Je- genealogy of Jesus, There's a strange name in there of all the people in all the world to be included 
in one of the great grandmothers of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior himself, to Rahab, the prostitute. Man, don't tell me God can't use anybody. He doesn't look at your resume when he calls you. He looks at your availability. But what's beautiful and what she teaches us is that real faith has the potential for generational and eternal impact. Real faith. See, your faith isn't just about you today. Your faith has the potential to impact your children and your children's children and so on and so forth. It's not just about you. Moms and dads, grandparents, grandmas, aunts, uncles, older cousins, teachers, pastors. One of the main reasons I'm in church today isn't because of a parent, but because of a high school English teacher. Real faith makes an impact beyond the moment. Real faith has the potential for generational impact. I want to invite our prayer team, our altar workers to come forward. We're going to pray. We're going to believe God with you today if you need prayer for anything this morning. James says one final thing in the passage that we read. He says, just as the body is dead without breath, so also faith is dead without good works. Just as the body is dead without breath, so also faith is dead without good works. This word breath is the exact same word where we get our word spirit in the New Testament. It's the Greek word pneuma. And when God made Adam, the word tells us that he stooped on the ground and that he breathed the breath of life into Adam and he became a living creature. He, he imparted some of himself into Adam and that's what brought life to Adam. James says, just as the body is dead without the breath of God, so is our faith dead without works and I would just I would just like to offer this thought this plea for you today that if your prayer would be Pastor Drew I need the Lord to breathe some life into my faith today because I have been claiming this but living this I and this isn't oh I'm a terrible person I'm a I'm a I'm a horrible sinner, but this is just the honest person saying, listen, I know I am not living up to the potential of faith that God has for me, because somewhere between what I say I believe and how I live out what I believe, there is a disconnect, because my confession does not match my actions. My faith does not match my thoughts. And I need the Lord today to breathe His Spirit into my life, into my faith, to reawaken my passion for Him, to reawaken my hunger and my thirst for Him, to breathe His breath of life into my life of faith so that, the, that what I say I am and how I live are not two separate things, but that they become one. 
Not on Sunday when I lift my hands, but how about on Thursday afternoon when I'm shopping at the grocery store? Not, on, not, not Wednesday night when we are in Bible study, but how about Wednesday morning when we're stuck in traffic? That what I say I believe and how I live my life every day, that there's not a disconnect between those two people. I need the Lord. Maybe you would say, I need the Lord to breathe on me today. And if that's you, we've got incredible prayer partners that want to believe God with you. No bowing heads, no closing eyes, but you would say, Pastor, I need the Lord to breathe the breath of life into my faith today. Would you come to this altar now? You can pray with one of our partners. You can come and you can stand or kneel alone, but come now. Don't wait, don't hesitate.